Welcome to MHM Podcast Network on MovieHouseMemories.com. Podcast for pod people. Our feature presentation begins now. You're listening to Lunchtime Movie Review from LunchtimeMovieReview.com. And we are the children of the 80s. I'm Matt. I'm Bill. I'm Chris. And I'm Patrick. We're bringing you a fantasy movie. Real <laughs> fantasy movie. Not Legend. Not the Muppet movie. Labyrinth. But first, a word from our sponsor. Do you have absolutely nowhere else to go? Do you like pointless adventures? Like puzzles and riddles? Sort of? Then come to the Goblin City. At the Goblin City, you can meet new and almost interesting people. Activities include watching the Goblin King sing, watching the Goblin King do ballet, we assume, and watching the Goblin King hit on 14-year-old girls. At the Goblin City, there is magic and dancing, and sometimes dance magic. The Goblin City. Book your trip today. All right, Chris, you got Labyrinth for us? Yes, I do. Out in a park, an owl sits on a branch watching a young girl, played by the very virginal Jennifer Connelly, as she butchers the lines of a dreadful play called Labyrinth. She struggles to remember the last lines as the clock chimes seven. Sarah realizes she's late to babysit her baby brother, Toby. She runs home in the rain, only to find her evil stepmother standing at the foot of the staircase, waiting to scold her. Sarah pouts and storms up the stairs. As if things couldn't get any worse, she realizes her favorite teddy bear, Lancelot, is missing. She immediately sets out on a quest to find it, but her journey takes her to the next room where she finds Lancelot defenseless on the floor of Toby's evil lair. Angered by this, our princess wishes the goblins would take her baby brother far, far away. Quicker than you could say gay sex, Toby vanishes and the owl from the park flies into the room, transforming itself into a very sexy goblin king named Jareth, played by the man's man himself and effeminate Daryl Hannah. Jareth tells Sarah she can have her brother back if she can solve his labyrinth in 13 hours. He then flashes one of his glass balls at the girl and the two are transported away to heaven. At the labyrinth's entrance, Sarah befriends Hoggle, a Debbie Downer of a dwarf who refuses to help her. Their sexual tension is immediately palpable, so he opens the gate for her. Sarah sets out on her journey alone. Like Alice in Wonderland, she stumbles her way through this maddening world, but eventually ends up trapped in an oubliette. Jareth, for some unknown reason, sends Hoggle to free her and take her back to the beginning of the maze. Sure, he could have waited for the 13 hour to expire first, but that would make way too much sense. Instead, Sarah uses her feminine wiles to get Hoggle to take her as far as he can, maybe even to dwarf first base. Eventually, the two come across a beast named Ludo, who has been trapped by a group of goblins. His roars frighten Hoggle, and he runs away like a coward. Sarah, however, stands firm and rescues him. The new duo journey on towards the goblin city, but the two become separated. Sarah then stumbles upon a group of flamers called the Fire Gang, who harass and accost her with every step. 
Hoggle once again swoops in from nowhere and rescues our princess. Jealous that Sarah will steal his man, Jareth has warned Hoggle that if he gets to dwarf first base with Sarah, he will toss him into the bog of eternal stench. Sarah does kiss Hoggle for rescuing her, and the two get flung to the bog's banks, but they manage to keep from falling in. They are then reunited with Ludo, and the three flee the stench as quickly as they can. But the only bridge leading out of the bog is guarded by the brave knight, Sir Didymus, played by a Muppet fox that rides a dog like a stallion. He finally agrees to let them pass and joins the troop. Complaining of hunger, Sarah is offered a poisoned peach by Hoggle. Just like Snow White, she naively takes a bite and falls into an LSD stupor where she floats away to a dreamy ballroom. Here, Jareth tries to act like a man by seducing the sedated girl. But a clock chimes in the background and arouses Sarah from her trance. She sets out on her journey yet again and rejoins Ludo and Sir Didymus. They eventually find the Goblin City but can't make it past the giant guard at the gate. For a third time, Hoggle swoops in and saves the day. Sarah forgives him for the peach betrayal and Hoggle takes one more step closer towards Dwarf's second base. Inside the city, the Goblin army attacks the group but the inept militia is easily defeated. They eventually reach Jareth's throne room together, but Sarah demands she face him alone because that's the way it's supposed to be. So much for teamwork. Sarah enters an M.C. Escher-inspired room full of wacky stairs, and she can see Toby but cannot reach him. Finally, Jareth gets enough glass balls to convince Sarah to abandon her quest. Instead, she recites the dreary monologue from the beginning of the movie, finally remembering the last line. With those amazing words, the mighty Goblin King is defeated. Sarah and her baby brother are safely returned home. Once she's alone in her bedroom, she can see her new friends in the mirror. Hoggle is standing next to her bed, hoping to hit a dwarf home run before he never gets to see her again. With a flirty little wink, she summons everyone into her room for one last party. As the camera pans away from her window, we see Jareth in his owl form looking on, and then flying off towards his next prey. All right, what year did this come out? Uh, Labyrinth was released on June 27th of 1986, that which was the same day as the classic American Anthem, uh, Running Scared and Ruthless Wait a minute, People. wait a minute. American Anthem, the... Uh, Mitch Gaylord? The, gym, the gymnastics movie? Yeah. With, uh, I remember that. With uh, what's... Uh, I'm, uh, Wayne Gretzky's wife. I can't remember her name. Janet, yeah, she's it, pretty hot. She was hot. Janet yeah. Jones. Yeah. She was very hot in that film. Uh, it was also re- released around the same time as About Last Night, Big Trouble in Little China, Psycho 3, Ferris Bueller's Day Off, and Back to School. So some actual big films. It was a summer movie that year. Yeah, it grossed over $12 million. It was the 66th highest grossing film of that year. Uh, it was right behind Extremities, Critters, and April Fool's Day, and right in front of Club Paradise, No Mercy, and Brighton Beach Memoirs. Yeah, total total kids movie this is, though, so maybe it got a little uh, little bump from you know kids going to see the, the Jim Henson magic. Well, you know, but it's it's. I agree with you. It's a kids' film. Seeing it now as an adult, but I do remember people talking about it back then. How this wasn't so much of a kids' film that you know Jim Henson had kind of tried to move beyond the Muppets into a more kind of adult filmmaking. That was the Dark Crystal and this. And but looking at this through adult eyes, I was like, no, this is still just a crappy kids' film. Total kids, cheeky kind of film. Well, and you mentioned the Dark Crystal, which came out a couple of years before this, and you know, obviously, puppeteering didn't 
advanced by leaps and bounds <laughs> in the time between the Dark Crystal and the Labyrinth. I mean, there there wasn't dramatic increases in the technology like we see now with CGI films. So, but, but Bill, there I hasn't think, been dramatic uh, increases in puppeteering since yeah. the Dark Crystal to today. <laughs> and, and so the, the two films don't look very different in terms, you know, because they both have these darker Muppets, you know, there's right. not the happy Miss Piggy and Kermit and Gonzo. They're, they're darker, more macabre-looking puppets, Muppets, whatever you want to call them. But the biggest difference between the two is just the story here is so weak. Yes, but, but speaking of CGI, did you? I, I was I read that this was is considered the first CGI scene with the owl at the beginning uh, of the at, film. At the beginning, yeah, I saw that. Which I thought was kind of interesting. And it looks like it's a first CGI. It does. It, it, yeah, it it's does. very noticeable. But hey, for '86, not not horrible. But yeah, I agree with you. The story compared to uh, the Gelfling flick, the Gelfling jam, as I like to call it. The Dark Crystal is it's night and day in that there is no story here and there at least was one for the the Dark Crystal. Well, and we recently watched with our kids The Dark Crystal and Labyrinth and watching The Dark Crystal, I still kind of enjoyed The Dark Crystal and I, you know, I remember really loving that as a kid and kind of still enjoyed it. Labyrinth, the kids didn't like it nearly as much. I didn't like it at all. It's funny the Labyrinth is kind of there, there's this whole genre of fantasy films that kind of comes around in, in, in the mid '80s like this, and it's it's you've got never-ending story, Labyrinth, Dark Crystal, uh, even I'll throw a legend in there, yeah. Princess Bride to a certain extent, bleed together to a degree. And I, I when when we talked about doing Labyrinth, I thought, oh no, I really like Labyrinth, and then I think I was thinking of uh, never-ending story. <laughs> <laughs> But to give you a frame of reference of what's going on in June of 1986, there's a couple news items that uh, uh, at least I remember. Uh, Len Bias dies in June of 86 after being the second selected the NBA drop by the Boston Celtics. Uh, the Goodwill Games in Moscow is going on. Remember those? That was like a, a never never really reoccurred, did it? Let's see. This, this comes out just weeks before the Statute of Liberty reopens after that renovation. And uh, the number one single was On My Own by Patti LaBelle and that silky smooth Michael McDonald. (laughs) That song still makes me cry to this day. (laughs) All right. Well, back to – this is not a music review but a movie review. Back to – Well, this is kind of a music review too because you've got David Bowie (laughs) as the lead Goblin King singing. Yeah, good uh, good point. So we do have David Bowie and his – weird mix of pop songs throughout the the course of this film what did you what did you guys think of that i think I, that uh it, it would seem forced like uh they they made a deal that uh, they would let him sing in the movie if he would act in the movie and uh, it didn't quite fit uh the movie itself i almost thought it was first they're like hey would you write a a music you know of some music for this film and he's like fuck it i'll be in it and they're like well, okay <laughs> Well, he probably took the wardrobe from his own house for this movie. <laughs> and all my wife was watching it with us or with me as I was watching. It, and she just kept commenting on the ballet pants that he's wearing throughout the thing, showing his junk. When and they come up, they come up like just below his nipples. Right. Yeah, there's a scene where Hoggle or one or he gets on his knees and he's right there getting ready to uh, uh, take care of the Goblin King. 
Yeah, and his well, dance. There's that one scene in the beginning, the dance magic dance scene, when he first kidnaps Toby, the little baby, and they're all kind of dancing, and the kid's freaking out, and he's throwing them up in the air and stuff. And not only is the music absolutely horrible, but the dancing is even worse. It is so so bad. I, I almost wonder if he just got like a ton of money to do this. If he was just paid so much that he could not turn it down. Because it, I, I have to imagine, looking back on this, the day it came out, he was like, what the hell was I thinking? Because it's so horrible. I think, well, I think just... the problem is the, the puppets out-danced uh, him. <laughs> that is true. But in addition to David Bowie, you have uh, Jennifer Connelly in one of her first roles, right? Uh, she'd been in a few roles. She, she was a child actor. She, uh, her first appearance was in a movie called Once Upon a Time in America, where she played the younger version of Elizabeth McGovern. Um, but yeah, this is kind of her kind of coming out role as uh, more as uh, towards adult roles, even though she was still a teenager at the time. But, uh, yeah, this is, this was a, one of the beginning films of my fixation with Jennifer Connelly that, you know, carried on through up until the mid two thousands when she got married. <laughs> I'm going to tell you that shit grew up nice. Yeah. She's uh she's very very pretty. Um it's, you know Jennifer Connelly is this actress for me that I know her name but then can never really place her in in films for for some reason. Mm-hmm. And and I know she's been in stuff that I've seen but I never I really can't identify her in a particular uh film. Well early on in addition to this she was in that great movie Career Opportunities where she's a oh, yeah. runaway rebel who ends up spending the night in some big box uh, store like a Walmart type place Target and it was I actually remember, Target Was it a Target yeah, yeah I I remember just absolutely loving her in that role and there's this just really awkward chemistry between her and whoever the guy was I don't remember who played the the romantic lead in that movie but I remember loving her in that movie back, and that was like early '90s. Yeah, the, she's in the uh, non-Edward Norton version of the Hulk. That's yeah, the, the one I always Eric, remember. Eric Bana one. Yeah, the. And then she was in a Beautiful Mind. She was uh, she Steve wo- Nash or uh, what's his name? Robert. Uh, what's the guy's name? Nash. <laughs> Did you say Steve Nash? Like I would say months? Steve Nash. Yeah, <laughs> you know the the genius basketball player <laughs> Nobel laureate for the Phoenix Suns. Whatever the Nash guy's name is. There's nothing that guy can't do. <laughs> He's amazing. <laughs> yeah, Blood Diamond. I do I do remember that. Again, I, I remember these films, but just can't pick her, uh, really pick her out. But she's hot. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> uh, but other than that, you've got Jim Henson's The Jim Henson Puppeteers. And one thing I thought was interesting, I guess two things I thought was interesting. Warwick Davis from Willow is, uh, you, you can never see his face, but he's one of the uh, – uh, midgets in costume, and I always L- little people, Matt, little people. <laughs> what I say, dwarf. <laughs> you said no. You said costume. <laughs> <laughs> and then uh, uh, Frank Oz is is in it. He's credited, but not his voice, which I thought was really weird. You know, I noticed that watching the credits. I was listening to, throughout the whole thing. I was like, I've, I don't think I ever heard Frank Frank Oz's voice. I guess he wasn't involved in this, but then. I saw his name in the credits. I went, oh, I guess he was involved in this. And it's weird that one of the most accomplished puppeteers uh, to actually have been on set working on this film doesn't actually do a voice in it. And unless, of course, his voice at this point in time is so recognizable for, you know, Fozzie and Miss Piggy and Yoda and all the other voices he's done that they just want to try to distinguish the film from that. And one of the most accomplished 
little people actors in Warwick Davis was not even seen. Normally when he's in a movie, they make a big deal about that. He was he was like they, wicked in Return <laughs> of the Jedi a couple years before. You know, he was the big guy. Well, in Return of the Jedi, yeah, he was he was the big guy. <laughs> he was the, the big midget. Big, he was the big guy. <laughs> so, he was, he was the big Chewbacca. little people. Uh, but that's that's really it for as far as actors. I mean, they're they're, they're all puppeteers and, and and voice work people that uh, that are working the Jim Henson stuff. But we do come to the the story, which if you can call it that, it was as as uh, Bill already mentioned, just non-existent. It well, was kind of like an outline that needed to be fleshed out more. And a bad outline. Like, he kidnaps this kid and says to the girl, if you can make it through my maze in 13 hours, you get him back. Why? Why does he have to give the kid back at all? Why 13 hours? Why is there a maze? Why does What's he want the, the kid? Of any of it? Why does he <laughs> want the kid? That's right. I mean, there's just Well, so I noticed there weren't a whole lot of uh, women in the labyrinth, you know? <laughs> that is true. There was the junk lady. That was about it. Yeah. No, they they don't they they don't flesh it out even at the beginning, at the middle, or even at the end. You're left with what just happened. I think the movie would have probably made a hell of a lot more sense if she woke up from a dream and the whole thing had been a dream. I think then any of these unexplained things could have been. Well, she's a stupid kid, so who cares? She doesn't know what she's dreaming about. It's a weird dream. But they didn't do that. They actually tried to make it a real thing. They actually tried to make it this fantasy reality world, and. By doing so, they basically just destroyed any possibility of overlooking most of the plot and the problems in it. Well, well but- I'm going to actually take issue with you on that is that I, I thought it was, it was without any ambiguity was her imagination. By from from they set that up at the very beginning. If you notice the the opening scene where they show her room, not the opening mm-hmm. scene, but when she gets back to the house, they show her yeah. room. They show all the people, many of the characters that are in there. They show the Wizard of Oz and where the wild things are, which this is seems to be a, a clear mashup of those two stories. And, and they show the different figurines and the different things that happen throughout the story. And then at the very end. Uh, she's, they, she has this whole thing about you have no power over me. She goes back home and then her, her friends say, well, remember, we're always here when you call us. And then they have this big party. So I thought it was, it was unambiguously her imagination while she's babysitting her, uh, her, her brother. I give you that, and I agree with you to a point. I don't. I, I guess I, the only part I disagree with is the unambiguously part. I think they. It was almost like they tried to make it seem like she is special. There really is this other world. It is real, and she has access to it. I, I don't think that they were am, are unambiguous in saying that it's a creation of her mind. Mm-hmm. I don't agree with that either. I I kind of felt that uh, they she came off as being presented as very socially awkward and. Uh, I couldn't imagine her having very many friends living in this little nerdy uh, Neverland world, and uh, and she had to escape through her mind because nobody wanted to hang out with her. You know, her uh, she's a evil, whiny bitch. She's yeah. a whiny bitch. Her ev- evil stepmother said um, some to the effect of, "You know, a girl your age should be going out, but here she is on another Friday, and she has nothing to do." But she blames the mom, not the fact that she's in a park in some medieval dress, reading horrible <laughs> plays. To a dog. (laughs) To a dog. Yeah, yeah, it really was just an excuse to uh, do some different looking puppets and and some, in some cases, some pretty cool uh, scenery. You know, the 
the kind of the the maze at the end where where she finally discovers she has power over David Bowie. I thought that was well done. Music was terrible, but I thought that the way it was shot was pretty interesting. Um, I agree with Matt that I that I think that this was all in her imagination. I also agree with Bill that I don't think it's unambiguous. I think it's ambiguous, so it, it gives the reader their own impression. They can either choose to believe in the labyrinth or they don't. It's all about just let's try to get some different puppets. You know, the Muppets are yeah. kind of tired and worn out. Let's try to let's design some new puppets, and and some of them aren't even that new. I mean the the little That's fox true. thing riding on the dog was straight out of any kind of Muppet show. So. One thing I really liked is the uh, sculpture of the ba- the David Bowie face um, that that uh, I'm sure you can YouTube it, but it mm-hmm. it looks like a, a, a sculpture and then it breaks off and it's three separate sculptures uh, kind of separated and that's a pretty cool effect. Oh, when he's when he's talking to Hoggle and he, the, the camera kind of pans to the left and then you see it's three stone features and. Yeah, that's yeah. that's exactly that's, no. that's a pretty cool visually. It's, there's some cool things going on. I've kind of wondered if the kid who played the baby Toby, if he kind of grew up like deranged and messed up because he spent however many days filming with all of these weird, demented, right. puppets all around him yeah. as a and, little baby. If he had like nightmares growing up as a kid, and David Bowie, don't forget David time. Bowie. Yeah, <laughs> he yeah, well, all right. Plus, plus David Bowie, but the kid clearly was not happy. Throughout filming, I mean, you can tell just by the way that the the scenes that they kept in the movie were portrayed. He was not happy with all of these puppets around. Well, him. did you notice that? I mean, I was looking at the credits. His uh, there, his name's Toby Froud. I think it is F R O U D. And and there's a uh, I don't know. There's something Froud, and then a Ryan, fe- yeah, and the female vo- female Froud that's involved. Or the, the, his, the what appears to be Brian Froud, right? Is is one of the main uh, puppeteers or involved with with that? And then there's another name, uh, the female, like I said, that that's involved with the film as well. And I assumed that was the the kid's parents that are. Just yeah, the, yep. According, it was. according to the internet, which of course is never wrong. Never wrong. Um, Brian Froud, who whom you mentioned, is one of the the collaborators and puppeteers on. This movie and on the Dark Crystal, along with some of the other Jim Henson stuff, is the father of oh, really? uh, of the kid Toby. Yeah, so they basically they apparently didn't want to spend any money on finding a child actor, so they're just like, "Hey, Brian, you got a kid who's about this age, right? Bring him down." Which explains why this kid is crying the whole time. <laughs> well, it, and it's weird that I guess originally his name, the character's name, wasn't supposed to be Toby, but he didn't respond to anything else, so they changed the character's name to Toby, so he would. <laughs> He would look when someone would say his name. So, Oh, that's funny. Are there any scenes, though, that you do like or particularly don't like in the film? Yeah, you know what I loved? I loved the scene in the very beginning when David Bowie first shows up and he does that really cool trick with the orb on his hand where he's kind of moving his hand back and forth and the orb is like floating from the back of his hand to the front of his hand. The don't- juggling thing? Yeah. They have a thing like that you can buy on Infomercial where you can... Mm-hmm. As seen on TV. That's right. Really? Uh, that, that was it. That was the only scene I liked. I was wondering <laughs> if that's how he actually got this part. They're like, can you juggle balls? And he's like, hell yeah, one hand. I've been doing it's, it for a lifetime, my friend. He, he didn't even do it. It wasn't even him. It was some juggler guy that had he had uh, his arms... But You know, the old trick where you put your arms under the armpits of someone and then you act as if you're their hands that's what they were doing it wasn't even david bowie doing it i'm gonna tell you the one scene i did like though that i th- i always think is is fairly clever and maybe it's you know in retrospect it's not but i still i still thought it was was the hands 
that that come together and start talking in different ways and each they they form a face yeah. and and each one is kind of different than the other. I, I think it's pretty clever and it's kind of kind of interesting. That uh, the the door knockers where uh, one couldn't hear because the door knocker was in its ears and the other couldn't talk because it was in his mouth. That was pretty interesting. But then they had uh, the logic like uh, the the doors where one will tell the truth and one doesn't, and she can't figure out. I'm just sitting there. Well. All you have to do is ask, is this one wearing red? And uh, the one in blue looks at the guy in red and says, no. Well, that's the one that lies. How hard was it for her to figure out which one lies and which one tells the truth? Right. I, and, and as they go through that whole logic puzzle, I, I, I'll i tell you, I just I just kept scratching my head. I don't get what you're saying. <laughs> I don't get it. Uh, any any other scenes, Patrick, that, you, that stand out to you either positively or negatively? Uh, anything with Jennifer Connelly, I generally enjoyed. After that, I got tired of fucking puppets. So You're dirty. So hey, I was 14 at the time. She was 16. She was an older woman. So dude, she's no, she's no uh, uh, Alyssa Milano, man. From from uh, Commando. How Commando. eight was she? I think she was 12. <laughs> she might have been 10. But I think I was eight, so yeah. As long as you're younger at the time, it's okay. Yeah, yeah she seemed she seemed like an older woman. Yeah. That's what I remember. Yeah, much oh, yeah. much like Bill, uh, Jennifer Connelly really burst onto my consciousness in 1990 with career opportunities in the movie The Hot Spot. Apparently, you were talking about that. Shows a little uh, little nudity in that. A one. lot of nudity in that. Yes, but Chris, you were talking about the. Uh, Bog of eternal stench. I was just amazed at the amount of detail they put in the anuses for this movie. Uh, it was a little more graphic than uh, I ever really would want to see. I think that was more graphic than any scene in RoboCop. Yeah, that was, that was weird. That was very clearly just a bunch of anuses uh, sharding, really. And uh, I don't know if they were really stretching it. They're like, hey, we can get these Muppets that can do this. You want to put in the film? Sure. Hmm. Yeah. All right. Well, uh, as if we need to, but let's go around and uh, give our review of Labyrinth. Chris. Um, this is one of my favorite movies. Uh, I think I liked it better than Return of the Jedi. <laughs> better than Empire Strikes Back. Uh, I just uh, I, I remember watching it as a kid over and over during the summer, and I loved it. I was very disappointed when I saw it this time. Uh, I guess I didn't know what the heck a story was back in the day. And apparently neither did the Henson's uh, puppeteers for this one. Bill. Yeah, I I liked it as a kid. I I didn't love it. I didn't watch it over and over again. Uh, Watching it again, I watched it, like I said, a little bit ago with our kids and just was so disappointed. I tried watching it again in preparation for this. Couldn't even do it. (laughs) I couldn't get through it. I really couldn't. It was just so bad. I didn't want to waste, you know, I got about halfway through and I'm like, I'm not wasting another hour of, of my time watching this crap fest again. So uh, stay away. All right, Patrick. Um, I had no, I very little memory of this film. I saw it probably in 1986. I know I saw it in the theater. Um, I was 14, so I was about that age where I'm getting away from childish things and I saw it as a kid's movie and I didn't really care for it, didn't romanticize it. <laughs> it- he had just found masturbation. So. Yeah, masturbation. <laughs> I'm going to fixate on the girl. <laughs> and apparently that came so, about the same time as Jennifer Cobb. I'm going to go home. <laughs> yeah, I'm going to go home and polish my Goblin King. So. Uh, no, but I, I don't. I did not romanticize this film. It wasn't one of my favorites. I ha- probably have not seen it since 1986. I I think I only saw it the one time. 
Um, and it was it was pretty bad. But I, I I was surprised at how childish it was. I I remember thinking of it as childish back then, but that this was supposed to be darker Jim Henson, and I don't find it very dark at all. I don't find it very dark or disturbing in the slightest, other than the terrible David Bowie music that he wrote for this, inappropriate music for this film. But um, no, I don't think it stands the test of time, and I don't think it was good in its time. All right, I I agree with you. It seemed, I was surprised at how much of a kid movie it was. I remember it being uh, just what you said as a more of an adult Jim Henson movie and not a Muppet movie, but it, it certainly came off just as a different fantasy version of a of a kids uh, kids Muppet movie, basically. Visually, it kind of stands the test of time if we're just looking at how it's shot, but the story is so bad. Please, please, please don't watch this film. But you can keep listening to us. Check us out on the uh, webpage at lunchtimemoviereview.com and like us on Facebook, Lunchtime Movie Review. And we do have a Twitter, like everyone else, Lunchtime Movie. Uh, if you'd like to support the podcast, come to uh, the webpage and you can purchase something uh, through Amazon. If you come in through our webpage at lunchtimemoviereview.com and that uh, supports the podcast and what we do. We're getting out of here right now and you guys are invited. This podcast is intended for entertainment and information purposes only. The theme music for Lunchtime Movie Review, Fireworks, is provided courtesy of Alexander Nakaranda at SerpentSoundStudios.com under a Creative Commons Attribution 4.0 license. All original content of this podcast is the intellectual property of Lunchtime Movie Review, the MHM Podcast Network, and Fuzzy Bunny Slippers Entertainment, LLC, unless otherwise noted. 